Well, if you are anything like me, it's always with a sense of apprehension that I check the news in the morning. Or if I know there's going to be a public announcement by the government later in the day, I keep on checking throughout the day. I mean, the numbers of COVID cases are going all in the wrong direction in many places in the world. And a number of countries have returned to a limited lockdown in hotspots in Ontario as well, as again imposing restrictions on key locations. And we can't help but wonder what is going to happen next. And beyond the daily numbers, we, I think we all struggle with COVID fatigue. What was first thought to be only a two-week necessity to contain a virus way back in March has dragged on for months. And there seems to be little sign of significant change on the horizon. True, at least we can meet in a limited way in, in the church building, and we're so thankful for that. But it still doesn't quite feel normal. We can't sing. We can't greet people the way we'd like to. We miss many of the members of the congregation, particularly those who are elderly and whose presence among us has been so meaningful for years and who can't be here. And then when we start thinking about the future, we can become discouraged. There's a potential that a second wave might cancel any progress that was made in our recovery of the economy. And we wonder, how will this affect our communities, our families, our neighborhood, our church? Can businesses, ours or our friends or our neighbors survive another shutdown? And some people, of course, keep asking questions about how this country is going to pay for the phenomenal amount of money that has been handed out. What will it mean for taxes when it's all over? Or think about the job market or the implications for food security next year. And some parents I talk to have, are worried about the long-term psychological effects the pandemic will have on their children. In a sense, there have been two pandemics right from the start, one of COVID-19 and the other one of fear. And both create a sense of anxiety. And so when we listen to these wonderful passages from Scripture today, we hear the psalmist affirm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. There's nothing I lack. And we desperately want to clutch to that well-known statement and say, amen, amen, with all of our hearts. Nevertheless, we realize that it's one thing to say that when the sun is shining, it's another thing when we're surrounded by prolonged anxiety. And it's striking that the passages from Isaiah, from Psalm 23, and from Matthew all speak of either a king, a shepherd, or, or, or God who sets this banquet table for his people. Images of abundance, of celebration, of good times splash across the pages of Scripture this morning. But if truth be told, we, we don't always picture God that way. Even if we sincerely want to reimagine our understanding of who God is and, and who He's promised to be for us, even if we really want to believe that God is good and generous and sincere in all that He offers us, circumstances can undercut any hope that we might have. And we find our faith starts to sip from those underground, hidden, poisoned streams of distrust, fear, and doubt, and our roots 
start to tap into toxic ideas. And before we know it, our faith is withering and slowly but surely anxiety, discouragement, and a very real concern about the truthfulness of God's generosity, about what God is doing in the world or, or what God's real motivation is. It all catches up to us and, and suspicions about God's attitude begin to darken our vision. Our own loyalties begin to shift to other sources that suggest that they can give us a quick, tangible hope, even if the promise is a quick fix. And when that doesn't work out, we're confronted with either paralyzing anxiety or a dry, passionless resignation that doesn't want our resignation that doesn't want to think about our circumstances and fear that the news won't be good. And so, you know, this morning on this Thanksgiving weekend, I, I want to spend most of our time with the epistle reading this morning. And, and I do so with the prayer that, that God will speak powerfully into our lives today. And we want to consider God's answer to anxiety. It's Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord always that we find a little jarring, if we're honest. In fact, it seems a little naive. I mean, even Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. But, but here Paul says, no, rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, we might be able to rejoice sometimes, but, but always seems a little unrealistic. And yet it's, it's as if Paul anticipates our reaction, so he does something that he rarely ever does. He repeats and says, he says, just in case you didn't get this, I'm going to say it again. And he insists, rejoice. Now, we might be quick to respond, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul, but we're living in the middle of a pandemic. So it seems like, like a bad joke to say to us at this very moment, rejoice in the Lord always, also in a time like this. It's almost like you're trying to make fun of us. Well, if this is all that Paul says, it could be an exercise in frustration, and we might be tempted to pack things up and move to a more realistic response. However, we need to realize that Paul isn't writing from the comfort of a beautiful study with a view of the sun sparkling on the Mediterranean Sea with some lute or lyre music playing in the, in the background. He's in a, a Roman prison. Unlike anything that we've seen in our days, it's, it's a dungeon where he probably doesn't see natural light for weeks on end, months. And what's more, later on in this same chapter, Paul will tell us that he knows what it's like to be in need. And he knows what it's like to have plenty. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so it would seem that rather than being some ivory tower theologian who has no idea what people go through in their daily lives, Paul has actually experienced circumstances in life that clarify his solidarity with us at this time and his conviction under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we can truly rejoice. He needed to learn how to do this, and by the guidance of the Spirit, he shares his insights with us today. And the good news is, he doesn't simply say, don't worry, be happy. No, no. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and then he goes on to teach us how to do this. 
And the first thing that Paul does as he unpacks what he means is he encourages us to place ourselves, to locate ourselves within the geography of grace in the unfolding of God's work in the world. He reminds us that we are participants in the drama of God's history as narrated in Scripture. We're part of a story that is bigger than where we find ourselves today. God is at work in the world, and he reminds us the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And then he says, so live with humility, with gentleness, not with frenzy or impatience. It's not our place to dictate to God how he should run the world. No, it's enough to know that God is at work and that he's coming back just as he promised. So characteristically, Paul recovers the long-range perspective, and he says, put your lives in that proper perspective. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming back. He says, this is what should determine the way you live today. The reality of Christ's return, that distinctively Christian hope, should temper every difficulty we face. And the call to live in humility, to live in gentleness, in kindness, is because Jesus is coming back. So place the moment you're in, living in in the larger panorama of world history. And remember that Jesus is coming back with a purpose. He's coming back to restore all things. He's coming back to usher in the new creation in all its splendor and God-honoring holiness and wholesomeness. And precisely because we're shaped by our final destiny, he goes on to bring a message that we urgently need to hear today. And he says, do not be anxious about anything. We need to underline the key word, anything, not some things, but anything. Don't be anxious, Paul says. Rather, pray. Bring your request to God. And yet, you know, the way that Paul structures his ideas is, is surprising. Uh, not anxiety, he says, but in everything, again, not just some things, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Isn't it true that we normally wait until our prayers or requests have been answered and then we say thank you? But that's not the way that Paul says we ought to pray. Gratitude should shape, should shape our prayers and, and thankfulness should anticipate what God will yet do. Thankfulness should be the theme of our requests even before God gives us what we ask for. And so Paul encourages us to pray with the absolute confidence that God will answer our prayers. And it's astonishing if you think about it. It implies a complete trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. It presupposes total confidence in God's generosity. It demonstrates the strong conviction that God's heart is for us not against us. There's absolutely no reason to question God's attitude towards us. Unlike those invited guests in the parable who questioned the king's generosity and refused to accept his invitation. I mean, why else would you 
refuse uh, an invitation of, of a lifetime to come to the king's son's banquet. I mean, we, though, can believe that our God is completely sincere and that he means every single word he says to us. And so Paul says, so bring your request to God in prayer. Now, you knew that before you came here this morning or before you turned into the live stream. Yes, yes, we're Christians. We, we should pray. Well, we've done that, and we're still worried. Notice, though, that to make his point, Paul ransacks the Greek dictionary to use all the words available to him to insist on prayer. He writes about prayer and petition and thanksgiving and request to God. And so he says, not anxiety, not complaining about how difficult things are, but the posture of a supplicant who brings their needs to Almighty God, to the God who asks, what do you want me to do for you? And this isn't simply good advice. No, no. Paul is using imperatives, commands. He's telling us, commanding us to come to God like this. And so God's word to you this morning is clear. Communicate your concerns to God about COVID, about your family, about your struggles with anxiety or, or depression or those deep, dark moments of doubt or questions, your inability to believe that God is really bigger than the problems that we face, or you think he's taking way too long to fix the problem. Bring all of this and more to God with a grateful heart, with thanksgiving. And what we learn is, and what we need to understand is that prayer is, is more than just asking about things. Prayer is much more about being transformed into a different kind of person. And so God says to each of us this morning, come to me, tell me about what's making you anxious. Tell me everything. And when you do this, Paul assures you that there will be a very specific, concrete result. Listen to what he says. And the peace of God, which transcends, that is greater than all understanding, will guard your, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you can trust God. But did you catch how Paul insists that the, this peace will not only guard or protect our hearts, so that our faith, our love, are still directed to God, so that our faith is still rooted in the promises of God, so that our heartfelt prayers can rest and rely completely on God. But he adds, God will guard your minds, hearts and minds. Do you know, this is a masterful addition of a great pastor Paul understands that we can sincerely, we can honestly want to believe against all odds. And we stretch out our hands to God in trembling faith. But then our minds go into overdrive. And we start thinking about how challenging our situation is. And so our minds tell us that to believe in a time like this is, is naive. To, to rejoice in the Lord in a time of pandemic is nothing more than a cruel joke. Or that the idea of saying thank you before God answers your prayer is to do it all wrong. And our minds say, this just doesn't work like this in the real world. 
And so it goes something like this. We wake up in the middle of the night and our minds start worrying about paying the mortgage or the rent if our salary is cut back or our job is terminated. And we worry about job security, about how we're going to manage if, if our kids have to study at home again and if we need to be home with them, for them, meaning that our family income might be challenged and the bills will come in and and, you know, we start thinking about family members that we haven't seen for such a long time. Aging family members, parents, grandparents in long-term care homes who are vulnerable and, and we can't be there the way we'd like. And, and then what happens if all more restrictions are put in place? And so fear takes over our minds and, and we hear the living room clock chime down the hallway. Two o'clock. Two thirty and we toss and turn in our beds. Three o'clock, and so we get up for a drink of water or some milk or melatonin or whatever you use, and four o'clock, and our minds won't slow down. And finally, we doze off to a fitful sleep only to be woken up by the alarm clock just a few hours later. No, says Paul, that's no way to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Turn your cares into prayers. Don't be anxious about, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And Paul says, the peace of God will guard, will garrison, will form a protective circle, not just around your hearts, our religious center, but also our minds, our thinking center. God will protect our minds so that those sneaking, sly enemies called doubt and anxiety and discouragement won't be able to penetrate our minds and rob you of your joy or your peace. Now, that is wonderfully good news this morning. It tru truly is. But Paul's not done yet. It gets better. Because he not only tells you that God will give you peace in a time of anxious care, a peace that transcends all human understanding, he not only promises that God will guard your hearts and your minds, but he encourages you to work this out, to cultivate habits that the Holy Spirit can use to bring a sense of real peace. And in effect, what he says is, don't let your mind race with the concerns about your situation. Rather, Whatever's true, whatever's pure, whatever's praiseworthy, think about these things. So train your minds to think about truth and beauty and things that are virtuous, things that aren't just good but excellent and praiseworthy. Discipline yourselves. Train your minds to think right thoughts. Choose what you will think about. Accept the fact that there are things that you can do something about, but there are other things beyond your control. Learn to discern the difference by, by focusing on what gives you life. But then, don't just live in your head, he says. Practice a godly life. Paul goes on to say, think about the teaching that you've received. Think about the traditions that you've received. Think about what you've heard from me or that you've seen me model for you. And he says, put it into practice. So Paul has a holistic approach, an integral approach that, to forming the church 
at Philippi, not just their heads, their, their, sorry, their hearts, their affections and loves, not just their heads, things to think about, knowledge, doctrine, things that are good and beautiful, but also ethics, also habits, also the way that you live your life in day-to-day circumstances so that we might say heads, hearts, and feet, and hands. And it's as we live in a way that is consistent with the gospel, with what we know from the scriptures, it is that we become people of prayer that will be delivered from the fear and anxiety so that we can rejoice because we experience the peace of God that transcends human reasoning. We can rejoice because God gives comfort and courage. But that's not all. In a stroke of absolute brilliance, Paul makes his final move. And he says, it's not only that you will know the peace of God, that's wonderful in and of itself, but listen to what he says in verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Not simply the blessings of God, and that's more than we possibly deserve, but the God of the blessings. Not just rekindled hope and courageous faith that, that, that floods our, our hearts with, with peace, but the gift of God himself. And he says, you will know the presence of God in the middle of whatever circumstances you might be facing. And that, dear people of God, is the secret to rejoicing in a time of pandemic. That is God's provision in a time of anxiety or fear about the future. You are not alone. God is with you. And he calls himself the God of peace, who promises to give you his peace, a peace that transcends all understanding. And so, and so Paul affirms that Psalm 23 is really not beyond our reach. And, you know, David moves from talking about the Lord, third person. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me into green pastures. And then he moves to talking about God in the second person. He says, although I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. You, you, you are with me. And it's precisely the presence of the God of peace that Paul is referring to. So not simply green pastures and quiet waters, but our shepherds walk, our shepherd walks with us in the dark valleys. The Lord, our shepherd, not only leads us to those idyllic places, he's with us in the dark, difficult segments of life's journeys too. Those bone-chilling valleys where we encounter the darkness of death. Right there, he promises to set a table before us. And did you catch that? in the presence of our enemies. Psalm 91 reminds us that our enemies include the terrors of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence or the plague, the pandemic that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noon. And so it's precisely there in the middle of our enemies, not after the battle's been won and we celebrate the victory. No, no, in the presence of our enemies that God will set the table for us. 
I trust that most of you are aware that our church has been granted a vital worship grant that will help us rethink the importance of the table of the Lord's Supper. And it's, it's a theme that we will come back to in, in the months to come. But for now, let me say that for centuries, this would have been the moment in the service where we move from the ministry of the Word to the ministry of the table. And it's at the Lord's table the place where we give thanks as the word Eucharist, or, which is an alternative name for the Lord's Supper, as that word means. It's at the table that we are assured of God's peace that it's been established through the work of reconciliation on the cross. And it's, it's as we come forward to participate in the table, we gather in hope, and as Paul reminds us, the Lord is at hand. We're, we're, we're told that that we can also be assured that we come without fear. Because the Lord, our shepherd, is one and the same as the good shepherd of the Gospels. And he's no one less than, than Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who's also the Lamb of God, who gives his life so that many will live, so that we may live. Because he has trampled down death by dying, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand, we can live with hope even in uncertain times. And the table we come to points to the climax of the biblical story, the banquet set for the marriage supper of the king's son, the Lamb of God who is God's supreme provision for us and the greatest sign of his love. And we are assured of a hope that is as real as the bread and the wine that we take in our hands. The table of God's kingdom reminds us of an achieved reconciliation so that God graciously sustains our faith with visible signs and seals in addition to his word. And the table orients us to God's future so that we can live in the present moment even this present moment, not with some sort of nostalgia, not, not just with a little bit of hope, but joyfully. We truly can rejoice always in every circumstances because our joy is found in Jesus Christ who has loved us with a deep everlasting love and who is with us, who is for us, and who is in us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with profound thankfulness for your word and your promises to us this morning that we pray. Grant us your peace, and let us know your presence in these difficult times. Help us to live with, with real, authentic joy through the power of your Spirit as we place our trust in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, our coming King. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.